Hello and welcome to episode one of the podcast for international relations and foreign policy analysis. I'm your host, Luke. As I said in, in the introduction, this episode is going to be on Is Russia a Great Power in the 21st Century? Or Can Russia Be a Great Power in the 21st Century? Please do not necessarily take this as an exhaustive discussion on Russia's great power status in the 21st century, since to do that would take some time and multiple episodes, as it's there's a lot to talk about, to be fair. And so, in the future, I'm probably going to create separate episodes for certain themes, events, individuals that will be discussed through in this podcast episode. And so, let's get cracking. Uh, Russia may be the largest state on Earth in terms of landmass, but its status as a great power status, as a great power nation even, is is debatable. In many in the West write it off as little more as a regional power. In fact, the former US President Barack Obama, in a statement, did call Russia a regional power, though that may be out of spite at Russia's uh, outmaneuvering of his administration in both the Ukraine and Syria, as well as his failed uh, initiative in the reset of uh, Russian-US relations under his first administration. But let us focus back on the question, and so let us examine the three main different themes, so to speak. So we'll be examining Russia's economic and geoeconomic capabilities, its military muscle, and then its political power, uh, and uh, soft power will also introduce in that. A quick digression here. Many themes throughout international relations, such as the term soft power and political power, are very hard to nail down since they can mean many different things to many different people. And so I intend to do future episodes in this podcast series that will discuss what is meant by the terms soft power, political power, etc. And so please tune in for them for a greater understanding and discussion on these terms. But we will start with Russia's economic capabilities. As I've already mentioned, it is the largest state on you know, on planet Earth in terms of landmass, but his economy is somewhat lacking. In Russia's economy, in nominal GDP is only 1.64 trillion US dollars, making it the 11th largest economy behind states such as the United Kingdom, Italy, Canada, and France. And this economic deficiency has really hampered Russia's ability to pull heavy punches geoeconomically. For example, uh, the United States, backed up by its, the world's largest economy, is able to dominate institutions such as the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, and the Asian Development Bank, along with Japan. Uh, and China, the second largest economy, for example, has two vast state-owned banks which can control investment, such as the, and these are even, the China Development Bank and the Export Impact Import Bank of China. And between them, they have more investment capital potential than all the multinational institutions of the West. And recently, I say recently, in the past couple of years, Russia also established the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, or the AIIB, uh, to add to their portfolio of geoeconomic potential. 
Russia does not have the economy to support such endeavors or institutions, but it does have one key geo-economic tool, so to speak, and this has been labeled by many observers in the West as the energy weapon. And to this is its domination of Central Asia's hydrocarbon resources. Due to the fact that most of Central and Eastern Europe relies on gas and oil shipments from either Russia or the Central Asian states, former Soviet republics, they have to import all these hydrocarbons through pipelines built back during the Soviet era. And so they all go through Russia. And thus Russia has the ability to turn the literal taps on and off to Eastern Europe. And we've seen this done many occasions, nominally targeted against the Ukraine when disputes have arisen since the 1990s and into this century. And this has caused evidently a lot of upset at times because Russia tends to turn the taps off when winter is approaching if it has fallen out with countries such as the Ukraine, Bulgaria or Romania over uh, transit fees, for example, and late payments. Now, in addition, so not only can it hold Central Europe and Eastern Europe essentially hostage almost, it holds the Central Asian states close uh, hostage almost as well, because not only can it target its limited economic investment potential, but as it controls the only way for the Central Asian republics to export their hydrocarbons, which are their main source of state revenue, these states must maintain very good relations with Moscow, otherwise they are no longer able to export their hydrocarbons. And another neat trick that the Russians do here is that since they're able to export, import Central Asian gas and oil for so cheap, they import that for the Russian market and then prevent a lot of Central Asian oil and gas actually reaching the European market, replacing it instead with more expensive, slightly more expensive Russian oil gas, which I think is quite a nice trick, to be fair. Uh, and so... This energy weapon has proved very useful. In fact, since the 2016 Russian intervention in the, uh, no, 2014, should I say, intervention in the Crimea and the eastern Ukraine, uh, the main European, well, the most powerful economy in Europe, Germany, has been uh, hesitant, per se, to necessarily come to political and economic blows with the Russians because of their reliance on Russian gas. Uh, for example, we have Nord Stream 2. Uh, well, the Germans are pushing ahead with Nord Stream 2 despite pressure from the United States. They've already got Nord Stream 1 gas pipeline through the Baltic from Russia, and they're just about to complete their second one. Uh, and so Germany's reliance on these uh, Russian hydrocarbons shows that Russia is able to not only hold hostage per se, but fracture the EU, NATO, the Western Bloc, we'll call it, for this uh, instance. Uh, compared to Bulgaria, for example, uh, when once the sanctions were placed on Russia over the Crimea and the Ukraine, uh, Bulgaria was heavily pressured to end the Black, Street, uh, Black Sea proposed pipeline, which it did, and thus Russia has forced to swing the potential pipeline further south going through Turkey. And so that really is all Russia's 
geoeconomic might per se because it is very limited and granted they can target their uh, outbound investment very well but only in certain circumstances and normally when they're not competing against either Chinese or US investment. However, it is more in their military muscle where their potential as a great power for the 21st century really shines through. In the aftermath of the Soviet Union's dissolution in the 1991, many in the West wrote off Russia's army as nothing more than a underfunded, undertrained, ragtag bag of conscripts. And the performance of Russia's armed for- forces in uh, the two Chechen wars and the 2009 invasion of Georgia during the Beijing Olympics uh, seemed to confirm these uh, assumptions that Russia's army was a has-been. You, you know, this was no longer the mass tank army that was threatening to overrun European democracy of like it was during the Warsaw Pact. However, learning lessons from the Chechen Wars and the 2009 invasion of Georgia, Russia has undertaken an immense modernization program of its entirety of its armed forces. We won't go into too much detail, per se, of this modernization. In fact, I will most likely do a separate episode on Russia's military modernization of the past decade or so, due to the fact that it is very extensive and immensely interesting. But we will talk briefly on it here. The modernization was aimed to move away from the conscript model. Uh, And here are some statistics. In 2016, the Russian army was roughly 50-50, 50% conscripts who were, you know, forced essentially you are forced into military service and then you had 50 percent volunteers the more what we consider in the west professional troops these are ones who are more dedicated to the cause and seek to actively join the military however now in uh 2019 even should i say these are the latest statistics we have they're now 260,000 draftees or conscripts in the Russian army compared to 370,000 contracted volunteers, which is an immense stride for the Russian military due to not only the cost of such a move, but also considering that for the longest time, going back to the Tsars, the Russian army has been based off the mass conscript model. That, I will note briefly here, that Russia's While the modernization of Russia's military forces has been immense in scale, it has also been done at a very cheap cost, almost. Russia is no longer even in the top three of military spenders. In fact, it's only top four, uh, with Saudi Arabia, China, and Russia, uh, no, and America being ahead of it, respectively. And when you compare Russia's uh, military spending compared to Saudi Arabia, even, uh, Russia is still behind Saudi Arabia by about 20 billion, but then when you compare it to the United States, which spends roughly either the same or more than the rest of the world on military spending combined, Russia is military, Russia's military spending is really a, quite a drop in the ocean. Uh, again, we'll go more into its military expenditure in a separate episode. But not only has it produced a new volunteer army, so to speak. This modernization has also trimmed down the Russian army. It has collapsed certain departments into others in order to streamline 
military command and organization, thus not only saving money by the reduction in uh, backroom jobs and office jobs, or staff jobs, should I say, in a more military sense, uh, but also making it more effective. Lastly, it has also produced a whole range of quite new and interesting weapons for the Russian army. Again, I intend to do a separate episode just on these new weapons because they are actually very interesting and have some great potential. Uh, for the first and probably most well-known weapon to be produced is the Amata Universal Combat Platform. Now, not to go too much into it currently, but this ultimately encapsulates Russia's idea of how to spend its money. It is spending it on a combat platform that can be used for multiple different vehicles and thus you save an awful lot of money because you don't have to have spare parts for 15 vehicles, the parts are interchangeable, the engineers are interchangeable, the drivers are interchangeable and ultimately it is a very in, uh, cost-saving measure. But it has it has not produced uh, poor vehicles so far just because it's a cost-saving measure. Of course, you have the T-14 Amata uh, main battle tank, which I'm sure there's many people know, and it was also a centre of ma much discussion earlier, once it was first demonstrated in the May Day military parade in Russia, where apparently the driver, not having been trained very well so far on the new machine, accidentally put the handbrake on, and that's why it Jack uh, didn't move rather than it being a faulty engine, as many in the West claimed. Uh, off this combat platform, you've also have the new heavy T-15 infantry fighting vehicle, which is estimated to be one of the most highly protected and armoured infantry fighting vehicles in the world, though with the new models and potential replacements for both the American Bradley and the British Warrior emerging soon, so we are told that maybe uh, that claim may be uh, died down. Uh, it has also formed the basis for armored recovery vehicles, self-propelled platforms, the potential for the next uh, BMT vehicle. And this is another new vehicle that has come out of Russia's modernization program, unofficially known as the Terminator by the manufacturer. It is a very impressive looking vehicle I've got to say it uh, has an awful lot of firepower to put down range not a tank substitute uh, as some would claim due to its lacking of armor and the heavy hitness that you can get with main battle tanks but still an interesting armored support vehicle the first BMPT was built on the chassis of the T-72 main battle tank so again giving them a new lease of life uh, moving on from that, the modernization has also seen the upgrading of Russia's T-72 fleet, which I thought was very interesting that they didn't choose to try and modify to any great extent the T-80 or the T-90 main battle tanks. But I guess, again here, the Russians were able to get more bang for their buckets, so to speak. In all, they can extend the longevity of the T-72 with new range finders, new armor, while not having to spend a vast amount of money. In terms of the Air Force, Russia has the new Su or Sukhoi 57 uh, stealth fighter jet, uh, designed very much like the American Raptor or the new F-35 strike fighter. Uh, and then in the anti-air department, 
carrying on the great Soviet tradition of excellent anti-aircraft rockets. You now have the S-400 battery, and as many of you know, a uh, dispute has broken out between Ankara and Washington over a NATO member purchasing the S-400 battery. Uh, uh, and also, it has developed the Panzer anti-aircraft system, which has seen use in the Syrian conflict, and again, I shall make a separate video on that system and the Syrian conflict. But, so, while Russia has undertaken a lot of military modernization, has it been necessarily effective? I would argue, yes, it has. You have seen Russia stage some of the largest armoured uh, army war games since the collapse of the Soviet Union, and these have gone fairly successful and been very impressive. But in a more practical sense, the smooth and efficient takeover of the Crimea by the Russian army was something that many did not expect in the West. In fact, it caught the West very flat-footed. Russia's support for the separatist and uh, movements in the east of Ukraine as well has been consistent. But that is not truly showing the capabilities of Russia's army. Its intervention on the behalf of the Assad, at the request of the Assad government in Syria, truly allowed Russia to show the world, so to speak, that it was back as a great military power in the 21st century, after its collapse in the pre-1990s. Uh, uh, so, you had straight off the bat in Syria, Russian airstrikes supported by long-range strategic bombers flying, flying from Russian territory, as well as the Russian Navy having a run-out using new cruise missiles in order to hit targets throughout the Syrian uh, countryside. And so far, it's been fairly successful. Russian firepower has turned the tide in Syria in favour of the Assad government, and it has allowed it to test a lot of its new weapons. Recently, it was confirmed that the T-14 Armata main battle tank had been tested in Syria. You've had the SU-75 tested in Syria, the Panzer system tested in Syria. Uh, the BMPT Terminator has been tested in Syria. A lot of Russia's new ha uh, hardware, new military kit, is getting a a good run-out compared to normal military equipment made during peacetime, which is tested but not under any real battlefield conditions, per se. Russia is getting the chance to test its new military hardware in battlefields, which will provide invaluable uh, evidence and research to its military manufacturers as well as armed forces. But moving on from that, Russia's shady mercenary group, the Wagner Group, has, in close cahoots with Mos with the Kremlin and the Russian military, supplied mercenaries across the globe, and in fact on at least 14 African battlefields where there are insurgencies such as in uh, the Sudan, Nigeria, Chad, Mozambique, where there's a growing uh, Islamist insurgency in the north of the country, Russian mercenaries and Russian firepower turn the tide in these conflicts in favour of the, the go current governments. And so it is, so Russia is demonstrating a strong potential to militarily be active in multiple parts of the world, even in a small sense, but in militarily active nevertheless, and be successful at it, which is key to Russia's great claim to be a great power status. If it was failing in these conflicts, then Russia would not be considered a great power because no one would turn to it. 
But because of Russia's great success in these conflicts in uh, Africa, where it sends its mercenaries and military hardware, and in Syria, a lot of countries are turning to it as an alternative to the West, and more specifically, the United States. And, uh, of course, I will do uh, separate episodes on Russia's uh, mercenaries throughout the world, as well as the Syrian conflict and Russia's intervention in it. So, you know, if I did not go into too much and extensive detail, as some of you may like, please don't be afraid. Those episodes and detail will be coming. And lastly, let's discuss Russia's political influence in the 21st century. Oh, it, Russia's political influence did take a very bad knock during the uh, following the collapse of the Soviet Union and the dissolution of the sort of communist bloc, as so you'd speak, around the world. Countries like Ethiopia and Somalia collapsing, along with the Eastern European communist bloc and the Warsaw Pact. Russia lost a lot of influence, and due to the turbul- the trouble of the 1990s and the turbulations of it, Russia struggled greatly economically, politically, and so was unable to regain a lot of this international political influence during the 1990s. However, Putin has begun making great strides to try and regain the back. Not only has he managed to hook, so to speak, uh, rope in the Central Asian states back into the Russian sphere, but is also starting... But uh, under Putin, you've also seen Russia make uh, advancements towards better relations with countries like Iran. It has carefully balanced the tightrope between Japan and China. You've seen Russia maintain very, very warm relations with Beijing, while also Putin having excellent discussions and relations with Tokyo, which is an extremely hard balancing act due to the historical and contemporary distrust and dislike between Japan and China. Uh, Russian influence is also growing in South Korea due to Putin's willingness to export Russian hydrocarbons to the Far East. But I think in Africa and the Middle East, Russia's influence truly is growing. Thanks to its uh, intervention on behalf of Assad, uh, whose government had almost lost the civil war in Syria, Putin and Russia attempted to show that Russia is a country that does not leave its friends behind, and so it won an enormous amount of political capital with countries such as Egypt, Algeria, Libya, uh, Iran, because a lot of these countries, namely Egypt for example, and others, have been betrayed only a few years earlier by the United States and the West in the wake of the Arab Spring. Mubarak and Gaddafi had been dictators that, well, in Mubarak's case, had been pro-American from the start, and Gaddafi had, in the aftermath of the 2003 Iraq invasion, had been brought in from the cold and had given up his nuclear weapons program, as well as his potential chemical and biological programs, in order to become a friend of the West. Then at the first sign of trouble, the West drops any sort of alliances they've made with the dictators and they get toppled as we saw Mubarak went and Gaddafi got killed in his civil war and so a lot of countries are turning towards Russia as a country that 
not only looks out for its friends and doesn't leave them in the mud, so to speak, but also doesn't attempt to force on them any sort of political model, which is key. Again, I shall most likely do a separate episode on the West's almost missionary impulse to try and spread free market democracies to the rest of the world and how that has gone and how that has somewhat left the West's foreign policy in a bit of a limbo currently with many countries refusing or disliking the West's missionary approach and uh, looking towards countries like China and Russia who offer a foreign policy that does not attempt to force on them political or economic models. Russia's influence in South, uh, no, in Africa also is growing extensively, due, mainly due to its uh, mercenaries who are helping to prop up multiple governments throughout the, the region and the continent, should I say. And this, in turn, is leading not only to warmer political relations between Russia and uh, countries in Africa, but also warmer economic relations. We've seen Russian companies securing large oil and natural gas contracts in countries like Mozambique, but generally raw material extraction, uh, extraction contracts throughout the region. And this, to an extent, is starting to translate into political support for Russia in uh, organizations such as the United Nations. Of course, not a major issue since the United States and China still pull most of the economic and military punches in Africa. And so many governments in Africa are unwilling to jeopardize sources of foreign investment. But support for Russia is growing. How that will continue once Putin uh, finally retires, no one knows. To be fair, no one knows when he's finally going to retire. With the recent act- uh, decision to try and exchange the Russian constitution, he may still get another six years, which, in my opinion, will be beneficial for Russia and for Russia's potential to be a great power in the 21st century. I will wrap it up there, aware that this has gone past the 10 to 15 minute mark that I had said that I wanted my first few episodes to be. I'm aware that this episode may have been haphazard, almost, but it's a very broad and vast topic. Russia's potential as great power and thus I did not want to get tied down necessarily into the nitty-gritty details of its economic, military and political and soft power because then we could have been here for six or more hours discussing the intricacies of it. I will endeavour to create separate episodes on each of these topics and in fact in terms of Russia's military for example there will probably be I imagine a whole host of episodes focused on its new weapons, its modernization, its interventions in the Ukraine, as well as its intervention in Syria, and what's next for the Russian military. And so, if you're looking for extensive detail, do not fear. It will be coming. I am going to be making the scope of episodes potentially much smaller in the future, so we can focus on small Uh, international relations and foreign policy affairs and thus we can get the detail in that some people may be yearning for but for the first few episodes of this podcast as I said in the introduction we're finding our feet so to speak and so I do not wish to 
turn too many people off with too much detail, statistics and figures at the start. In other news, I'm looking and working towards getting a Facebook page uh, set up, which will be linked to this podcast, so that you guys can come and pose questions, have a friendly discussion on subjects and issues raised throughout this podcast. I'll also use that as a chance to upload uh, tables, charts, pictures, infographics as a way to help people visualize what I'm discussing in my podcast. And hopefully through that we can get enough questions on the Facebook page for me to do some Q&As. Thank you for all. I will again ask you for your ask for your forgiveness for my shoddy editing and somewhat haphazard manner of talking. I'm not a very great uh, public speaker, even though I'm talking to you through a podcast, and I'm immensely bad at reading on scripts as well. I always, uh, some, for some reason, stop reading halfway through. I hope you prefer these more casual, almost free-flow discussions, and uh, I look forward to hearing back some for some feedback from you guys. And uh, I will catch you in the next episode, which I will hopefully be uploading in the next few days.